Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Pratt Library. My name is Reginald Harris, um, and uh, I am currently IT Director and Poetry in the Branches Coordinator for Poets House in New York, uh, although I have been at Pratt or uh, before I moved to New York, was at the Pratt for years, a uh, very long time. So it's good to be it's good to be back. It's good to be home. Um, we've also been doing this um, annual reading with members of the Kavi Khanum African American Writers Workshop Retreat for a number of years. This, what is this? We're coming up on ten almost before too much longer, uh, which is really a great uh, thing to do. And I want to thank Judy. Uh, Cooper and the Pratt for, for allowing us to, to come and take over the first Sunday in December, uh, year after year. Although it is a little bit odd because this is the first year when we haven't had to compete with the uh, with the book sale, uh, which has been moved, by the way, to uh, here's the um, advertisement portion portion of the program uh, to next weekend, Friday the sixth, uh, Sunday the seventh, and Friday the sixth, Saturday the seventh, and Sunday the eighth, uh, which. Those of you who've been here know it's a fantastic uh, thing. If you if you don't have enough books, and you can never have enough books, uh, please <laughs> please come down and help Pratt uh, by by buying. And then Sunday is the Box Day, um, which is really crazy and really wonderful. So so please do that. Um, that and other uh, library events are in Compass. They're they're wonderful. Uh, newsletter, so please pick that up over there on the table and sign in on the sheet so you can get that um, at home or in your email. Um, and the other uh, bit of business I want to take care of is to mention the, uh, the poetry contest for Maryland poets. Um, Kyle, you live in Maryland, so you can, well, no, never mind. Uh, but anyway, uh, for uh, for Maryland poets, those of you who are poetry uh, authors, uh, writers, as well as fans, um, the winning poem will be published in Poet Lore, which is one of the oldest uh, literary journals in the country. And there will also get your own window down in the front, uh, which is a great honor and it's a wonderful thing. So everybody passing will see uh, your poem. So there's flyers about that over there too. Um, but today we are here to uh, hear Kyle Dargan and Amber Flora Thomas. Um, uh, a little bit about uh, Kavi Khanum. Um, Kavi Khanum is, uh, as I said, is a poetry workshop and retreat for African-American writers founded by Tori Derricott and Cornelius Eady way back in 1996. Um, and a remarkable number of writers have been through the program. And an equally astonishing number of uh, authors have been uh, instructors or teachers at that program, including Baltimore's own Afa Michael Weaver, um, the late and beloved Lucille Clifton, uh, stopped by for some astounding uh, days uh, a number of years ago, um, and, and others. Um, and the uh, winner of the first Kaveh Khanum Book Prize is now the Poet Laureate of the United States, which is absolutely astonishing, Natasha Threthway. So um, we encourage uh, African-American poets to apply. Uh, you will probably have to apply a couple of times because I think every single black person that writes in America tries to get in, <laughs> tries to get in but keep trying. Um, uh, I stuck in because I was there in the second year, so I said, like, hey, they didn't know any better. Um, but anyway, um, and it is a remarkable... Um, a, a remarkable experience uh, to have to write a poem every day for a week um, for three years in a row that you can do to do that. Um, 
Yeah, you just try to do that, um, and it's and it's wonderful, as you will hear. Um, there is not a house style, if you will. I don't think there isn't uh, a particular type of poem that uh, that Kavi Khan is looking for. We just want you to write your best poem. And today, this afternoon, we'll hear two of our favorites and best poets, both of whom won uh, a Kavi Khan Prize for their first books. Um, since it is uh, a Sunday in the fall, we flipped a coin to see who would read first. <laughs> and uh, Professor Kyle Dargan, uh, okay, there was a little too early to say that. Uh, uh, Kyle Dargan uh, won, the, uh, won the coin toss. Um, he is the author of three collections of poetry. Um, the Listening, his first book, was uh, a winner of the Kavi Khan first, uh, first Book Poetry Prize. Um, his uh, next book, Bouquet of Hungers, came out in, in 2007. And his uh, last, latest published book, which I will mispronounce the name of right now, Logaria Dementia, uh, came out in 2010. And um, I think he's got something new that's sort of sitting there bubbling and ready to come out now. He teaches down at American University in Washington, D.C., and is founder and editor of an online journal called Post No Ills, uh, which does great work in reviews and things like that. So without further ado, it's my very great pleasure to introduce Kyle Dargan. Yeah, I can't win any uh, state poetry prizes, Reggie, because I don't live in a state. I live in D.C. No rights. Um, yeah, but I don't get any of those Maryland rights with it. Um, thanks to Reggie and Judy. And it's good to be back at the, the Pratt. The, the last time I was here... I was actually reading with Lucille Clifton, um, and I always tell this this story that the only time I've ever felt um, wholly inadequate uh, sharing a podium with someone, another writer, is when I read with Lucille Clifton. Um, and I still feel that way to this day. I don't even know what I was doing there. Um, I just knew to read quickly and get off the stage so everyone else could get to um, Lucille Clifton, but I'm, you know, extremely happy to have had that experience because, um, you know, she was such a great presence in the poetry world and is sincerely missed. And her work persists. I don't know if any of you know about this, but this is the collected work of Lucille Clifton. I encourage you all to pick up a copy. Um, and so given that I'm back at the Pratt in Baltimore, I figured it's only right to open with uh, a poem by Lucille Clifton. So this is Here Rest. Here rests my sister Josephine, born July in 29, and dead these 15 years, who carried a book on every stroll. When daddy was dying, she left the streets and moved back home to tend him. Her pimp came too, her diamond dick, and they would take turns reading a Bible aloud through the house. When you poem this, and you will, she would say, remember the book of Job. Happy birthday and hope to you, Josephine, one of the East's most wanted. May heaven be filled with literate men. May they bed you with respect. 
Um, so since Reggie mentioned it, I'm going to read some poems from um, the book that won the Kave Kana Prize, The Listening, and then uh, a little bit from Lugaria Dimension, and then the, the new book that Reggie spoke of that should be out sometime next year, hopefully. Um, let me just start. I just heard some hip-hop downstairs, so we'll do this. And, and Baltimore reminds me of home. I'm from Newark, New Jersey. Um, East Orange, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. So Philly, cities like Baltimore, Philly remind me of home. Uh, this is Redefinition, uh, East Orange, New Jersey. Less and less of a city. No buildings tall. Three floors at the most, but enough stories to fill every window. It feels like what it is, a hood. Most dogs will bite. The birds fly away at a glance. Bee squirrels, though, have adjusted. One has learned to peer through the screen door and see who is in our kitchen. That deserves something. No cashews in the cabinet. Cinnamon raisin bread will do. The swirls and shriveled grapes orbit lines and planets. I break off a piece of this galaxy, tossing it in the squirrel's direction. direction. She crawls over, stands to eat, then back to four legs, combing the ground, only to become a biped again, switching back and forth as if evolution is some LP you can scratch and backspin. Um, this poem's about something stupid I did when I was in college. Um, I spent a day walking around in Timberland boots with no socks on um, and wound up with bloody feet. Uh, and I guess you, you write poems about stupid things you do in college for your first book. Uh, so this, this piece is called Letting. There was no time for socks this morning. I shed boots, bend down to see what hours of burning translate into visually. Skin rubbed shiny, gems embedded in the balls of ankles. In three days, flesh like fantasy turns gems into scabs. Plasma partitions to protect me from myself. But as night compiles hours, I'm tempted to break my own seals to stay awake. My foot perched stone still, blood beads into a mark of affluence, of wealth self-generated. A drop falls to the floor, a marble, a Mars, a red so bottomless. No wonder our earliest healers thought a deep draught of this could fill the body back to living. So that's The Listening. It's an old book. I usually don't read from it because it's 10 years old now, which is crazy. Um, Loggery Dementia, um, the title for the book I actually got from uh, David Brooks, the columnist and writer, was on the Tim Russert show uh, right before he passed. And they were talking about the 2008 Democratic primary. And um, David Brooks made this comment about uh, 
Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama both being engaged in this Lageria dementia, trying so hard to distinguish themselves from each other when they weren't that different that they basically had talked themselves into sounding crazy, uh, which is what Lageria dementia means, talking to oneself until you sound uh, insane. And so I, I sort of adapted that idea um, for poetry and wondered, like, how many different voices could I try on and what might that insanity bring out of some new work? Um, so the book has a lot of quotes from different uh, individuals. Um, I try on a lot of different voices in the poems. Um, it was a fun exercise. Uh, this piece, I'll See It When I Believe It, is my uh, anti-statistics poem. And it opens with a quote from uh, Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. Um, but at the end of the movie, there's a scene with outtakes. And um, in one of the outtake scenes, uh, Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell, says, uh, 98% of people will die sometime in their lives. Uh, I'll see it when I believe it. Statistically, one can prove airplane commutes to be safer than train travel. But the statistician fancies walking to work. As on foot, he is 3.5 times more likely to meet the potential mother of his potential children. Remembering this, he can only muster a smile for every fourth woman with whom he manages to share eyes. At the bread shop, he forces a stare through the baker's lenses, yet he longs to decipher her hands to know if their powder is sweet or chalky, though, statistically speaking, incorporating food into procreation is a bad idea. We actually all taste alike when fricasseed in life's ancient root, though, statistically, fewer perish from hunger than specific thirst in this world draped with water. While all data suggests more sinners walk among us than in hell, where there are no pencils, and the dead have never bothered to return their surveys. Um, as I said, I'm from New Jersey, so I've always had a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder about New York. Um, and after, it was really interesting, after 9-11, a lot of the... Uh, corporations moved their corporate housing over into New Jersey because it was perceived as safer um, than having those uh, residencies in uh, Manhattan. Um, so it's interesting to watch this shift in opinion uh, about New Jersey uh, change after that tragedy. I think, of course, things have shifted back now. I hear more and more New Jersey jokes on TV, so I guess we're back to where we were. Um, but I guess this, this poem, The Most Beautiful City in the Wounded Empire, was written for that time between when uh, people were renegotiating that relationship between New Jersey and New York. The Most Beautiful City in the Wounded Empire. They've refaced the license plates. Soon, none will recall when liberty's oxidized green dermis and dress were our symbols for this beautiful city now with new laws dictating all scurry outside to stuff smoke into their mouths. The colors, you say, the drowned sepia circling the model's eyes. Worn to stucco, the posters on sidewalk plywood carousels move when we move. 
pedestrians move when the cars move, cutting against each other like virgins tumescent with pride. Why do you love this place? I'm from New Jersey. When you say the city, I think of tunnels, still armadas of brake lights. I think of a place called home and reasons to go there. And you, these days, you want to come with me. This, uh, sometimes I listen to the things that my students say when I'm crossing the quad. Um, I'm still, I won't say young enough, but young enough looking uh, for them to not always realize that I'm a professor. And it makes for some interesting listening material. Um, so the, the quote in this poem that opens the piece is actually something I heard someone say when I was leaving class. And I just decided, you know, where can I go with this in a poem? Sort of playing off that idea of what to do with different voices uh, with this book. So this is called Man of the Family. Your sister calls from college to say, there's an asshole in my bed. Usually it was under and a monster. You realize a flashlight and the can of air freshener that doubled as goblin repellent won't help this situation. Think like a doctor, the asshole a condition. When did you first notice the asshole? How long has he been in your bed? But such histories no older brother desires to jot down. She begs you treat her symptom with fists, lots of them. So you drive to your friend's homes with a burlap sack, filling her prescription one rung doorbell at a time. Wishing your father's giant hands were still a mere shout away. Um, and I'm writing another Man of the Family poem. It's not going to be in the new book, but maybe the book after that. Sort of like imagining the father as one of those uh, super libre wrestlers from Mexico. Um, it's still coming together in my head. But I mean, that's you know the, the best part about being a poet is that like you have utterly ridiculous ideas and say, well, you know, if I did this and I did that, it might turn into something. Um, so hopefully that poem will turn into something. Um, and this is the, the new book, Honest Engine, which will be out. It won't be out for a while, so there's almost no point in me telling you about it. But um, I'm trying to think where to start with this. As I was telling... Uh, Julie earlier, I had a lot of deaths in my family over the last couple of years. Um, my grandmother died three years ago. My aunt had uh, two heart attacks and passed away this time last year, as did my stepfather's mother. And then my college roommate got hit by a car and killed. Um, and then my friend Marlene, a photographer from D.C., she was only 29. She had a heart attack and died. And those last four deaths were only in like a two-month period. Um, so death was uh, constantly on my mind. And now I just found out my dad may have um, prostate cancer. So I'm hoping that he's not going to be another part of this. Um, yeah, this is, I'll start with this DC poem. This is the first poem in the book, as it is right now. State of the Union. And as for those of you who don't know, um, 
every State of the Union, there's one cabinet member that they have to leave off-site outside of the Capitol um, in the event that someone blows up the Capitol and, you know, you need someone to run the government after that. Um, And so that's part of what uh, this poem references. State of the Union. I live in a land called East of the River, five miles from the U.S. Capitol, where, still, the airspace must be policed. No fly zones. Tonight, a helicopter freezes into a shallow star blinking above my house, while the men and women of government are herded inside the Senate chambers. Our commander-in-chief in all his cabinet, save one, traditionally one, who is excluded and tasked with resurrecting our country should Russia, China, Iran, or what's left of Iraq try to bull an atomic 710 split toppling the monument and capital. Tonight, the agriculture secretary is assigned to save us. It should always be our agriculture secretary. In times of crisis, a country needs before commerce or war or law to eat. And if we'd allow the appointment of a secretary of agriculture who can't grow a pea, then might we not deserve oblivion. I prefer to imagine our agriculture secretary hunkered in his undisclosed location, listening to the speech on battery-powered radio, sifting seed through his dusty palms, deciding what must grow first in the aftermath of fire. Yeah, I'll read some of these China poems. I went to China with the State Department on a cultural exchange two years ago um, and didn't write about it for a long time, uh, two years. I was still figuring out. Very strange being a young African-American person in China. Um, there are some places where you're invisible, which I guess isn't that different from America. Uh, then there are some places where you're, you're hyper uh, Observed. I remember walking through the Forbidden City and just having, you know, random children run up to you and to like take pictures, and you're trying to explain to them like I'm not a basketball player. <laughs> um, but you know, they didn't care. And I, and I think about that now. But you know, I'm thinking, you know, years later, like some some kid, you know, has pictures of me in their report on the trip to the Forbidden City, and like I really want to know what they said about me <laughs> in in class. It's like. Is it, you know, random American Negro or, you know, <laughs> what? Um, but, yeah, it's, so it's, it took a while for poems to come out of it. But while we were there, there was one, one writer there, uh, Xiao Fan, which is a pen name. It means small food. It's not a, a real name. Xiao Fan, um, who is from Shanghai, and I guess is one of more of the younger, uh, hipper uh, Chinese writers that we interacted with. And... Um, He's very interested in Western culture, watched a lot of Western movies, and therefore felt as if he was somewhat of an expert um, on American culture. But then you, you come to find out that, you know, the American movies that he was watching was all, you know, blockbusters. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm sure there are some things that Transformers will tell you about America, but, you know, not 
it's not that nuanced. Um, yeah, I don't think he saw that. Um, I don't know if that was big enough. But I'm like Michael Bay, like that's for him. Um, and so eventually when we were in China, I um, stopped talking to read the poem, but we were in uh, Shanghai, and he, he took me to the place where he gets his DVDs, and like I'm walking through the back alleys of Shanghai, and at some point after walking through the dark for five minutes, I'm like, I'm going to get stabbed and killed in Shanghai. Um, and then he, he like knocks on this door on a wall. There's no windows. And it opens up, and this guy has like this huge just cave of, you know, um, bootleg DVDs, other types of contraband, a gun, um, among other things. But, you know, it was, it was, it's really interesting to see your culture really compressed into one space in another country. Um, the same thing happened at the World's Fair, um, the World's Expo. The America float was very interesting. Um, lots of cleavage and um, <laughs> flags. I guess that's us. Um, but anyway, this poem is called uh, Cormac McCarthy as Translation. One of the books we read together before we left was The Road. Um, and we had an interesting conversation about that book. Uh, so this poem eventually came out of it. <laughs> Cormac McCarthy's translation. We're in Iowa City reading The Road when Xiao Fan gently scolds us. You Americans, always worried for, always in need of saving the world. Were it not for the fact that I know his sense of the American narrative is steeped in bootleg Michael Bay cinema from a Shanghai back alley contraband cave he'll drag me inside months from now, I would consider his critique. Maybe some breath of truth wafts within what he says. Maybe he can see us clearly, our bald-faced nationhood here against the unadorned middle America. Our God complex so obvious when wreathed with lush amber and green stalks. Another misconception would that be, for there is no such middle America. Everywhere, or the need to be everywhere, has no middle. And yes, planet America requires saving. Maybe that is why our stories all begin with the world almost ending here. That keeps us up at night, shatters our sleep, which Xiao Fan can't understand because he wasn't he was never taught our pottery barn rule, that if you saved it, then you've broken it, then it's yours. Uh, I'll, read, I'll read one more poem and get out of here. Uh, <laughs> Charm City, right? I'll read Charm. Yeah, there we go. That's simple. Charm, it's another college poem, but you'll tell I'm about 10 years older now. Charm. Stowed just behind my ear, hidden yet within quick reach, is the memory of the Mamduhai sisters and the dance they dance before a captive audience of me. I crossed the Lambeth Common climb the stairs to the younger's dorm room in need of some book whose importance withered after I arrived and they asked if I wanted to see them move together. Too shy to say yes with confidence, too man to say, too not to say, sure, 
Today, I would say, please, I would say, thank you before such a gift is given. Precision, synchronized sisters, transfixed, such a stiff word. Give me a term that blends guilt and awe, makes a duet of those feelings. It would name that swirl in my gut as I trained my gaze to their sharpened feet, pursed thumbs and index fingers, blinking like chimes. I wondered who was I to be offered their dance homework, who would believe what I was being shown. I studied, made an art of being present, sure that this recital would never happen again. As I later floated from their room, my father's voice shook my skull. Son, life is all downhill after college. I stashed the memory of their dance for the days when I feel my father just might be right. And I'm tumbling down midlife's gyre. I've been lucky. I saw some of the summit. I can remember that I'm falling from an apex of grace. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you. Um, I can, having years ago been in uh, South America, in Chile, I can tell you they look at, at least where I was, that part of Chile, they look at black people sort of strangely, too. Uh, I remember being, uh, I, I didn't have hair. I, mean, I was sort of like really short, and so I'm sure they thought I was like some kind of a boxer or something. And, they, and you're right, the kids would come up and they go, oh, wow, look, I've only seen you on TV. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It's very strange. Um, and you really don't know how to, this is great, but then it's sort of like, eh, I don't know. Um, well, anyway, um, it is a very great pleasure now to uh, bring up Amber Flora Thomas, who uh, we on the East Coast don't get a chance to see enough of, um, in part uh, because, uh, well, she's now a professor of English at uh, East Carolina University, but that's after a number of years in Alaska, which is wonderful, and I can't wait to ask you if you could see Sarah Palin's house from yours. Um, her uh, first book, uh, Eye of Water, oh, beautiful first book, won the uh, Coffee Cutter Prize, and her most recent book is The Rabbits Could Sing. Um, Amber, welcome, welcome back to the East. Amber Ford Thomas. Sarah Palin again. <laughs> I hear so much about it. everyone always wants to know about Sarah, but yeah, just you know, just a few times I was out walking my dogs and I saw her, you know, skinning a moose or you know whatever it was. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Um, this is such a beautiful room, and and uh, thank you all for coming out on Sunday. And um, I guess it's not that chilly for Baltimore this time of year. But um, but it's 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 lovely, and I'm I'm glad the vanilla ice you know ice ice baby that's done. I was like, God, am I going to have to read through that? That would be really interesting. Um, so I was just thinking this morning as I was putting poems together for this reading. Um, I was thinking about how glad I was that my work that these are already done that I don't actually have to come up here and produce work because I'm having the hardest time. It, you know, it, it's one of those 
spaces for me where I really am sort of asking that question, you know, what does the poem want? You know, what, what is, um, you know, what is, where does the poem, you know, what does poetry need right now? And then what do I want to write? And, you know, what is it asking of me? And, and I guess I've been getting a lot of rejections from editors. And so that's part of the reason why those questions are coming to mind. So I'm going to start by reading just a few poems from my first book. And then I'll read a few poems from The Rabbits Could Sing, and then I'll read some new work from a third book. <laughs> oak Leaf. Holding an oak leaf over the campfire in mere woods, I see its limit. A crude veil of tendrils and veins stretches toward bright edges. Along the surface, a spider's misty circuit crosses what already meets. Below, the shadows of my fingers grow stout and narrow in turn. I think they are my father's fingers, a coarser nature, a worried popping of the joints. Never still his sculptor's tendency to put every substance into form. Wire sculptures he names spirit and cosmic fire, each a chaotic relic of the path thought takes. It's concave mending in lines, never sure of destination. A difficult mesh woven into tunneling arms of copper and brass. My art might amount to this, the meaning inherited, my vision whittled from his, repeating the same blind passage from stem to split light in the captive shell. It's Monday. In August, I can smell the ocean seven miles southwest. My back itches from cold. My pant legs burn against my knees. I'm 30 and worry I'm too late for something. I'll surrender the woods, the red sticks of flakes, the red sticks flaking coals in the fire, the universe of the leaf where black spots open to pinholes of orange light. And that was written 10 years ago, too, so <laughs> the only age. But somehow it, it's nice to come back to these poems. Miscarriage in October with ladybugs. Window dusk mobilizes each blood drop. Minuscule as bunch berries, they gather on the blinds. Crowd a transparent diagram of ovaries. The uterus dappled with the heart-shaped crawlers. The nurse's fingers prod and flutter between tools on a silver tray. This will pinch. Karen on last night's news warned we are not going out of our minds. The pests are harmless to wood, houseplants, carpets. The migration will be over in a week before we know it. My superstitious eye roves for meaning. They are known as God's beetles, our lady's birds. Soft cluck on the exam table, stiff paper. They land, top-heavy spinners, able to recover equilibrium only when their arms, exploding like caped arms, open out. The defining marks, the red of crab apples, split apart to reveal the furrowed body beneath. I let one journey my arm, the tang of my apricot lotion like sickness. Legs so delicate it struggles to cross my wrist bone, barely pausing over a fleck of a mole. 
I'm no station for this wayward seeker. I shake my arm, blow the hairs to attention. In the sterile spoon of a speculum, the bugs flicker in and out of being. This will sting. Yes, the walls are disaster, always rearranging their evidence of loss. Not unlike the iodine-soaked gauze the nurse drops in the waste can, lid slapping shut. Hope takes so long to shut down, then slow, they retrace paths, stall on the stethoscope's flat ear, search a way in a jar of cotton balls that cornered heaven. And this is a, one of the love poems um, from Eye of Water. Marlboros at dusk. Light clouded. A nighthawk cuts across the last threads as though what can be seen clearly. Your foot cupped in my hands, the growing veins of tree limbs darkening above us contains its own crude light. Silence changes us without our turning to know it happens in the other's eyes. Love, a rich sadness we can afford the longing for. Your look retreats in a haze of smoke. I lift the arch of your pale foot to my lips. Desire does sustain its hold. We are invented by what we let pass through us. So um, in my second book, The Rabbits Could Sing, um, I felt this need to have a conversation with the reader to somehow, you know, reach out to the reader and say, you know, this is kind of a clue or an idea of where I'm trying to take the work or where the work comes from. And I wasn't successful at that, but but I felt this sort of self-consciousness in coming to this book um, because I had heard from my editor and from other readers that my first book was so difficult to read and that it wasn't as accessible as a lot of American poetry. So I wanted to try to be accessible in a way that wouldn't compromise the poetry so much, but I still ended up writing more narrative poetry and then writing these poems that sort of address the reader. So this is to a reader, <clears throat> and it, it won't help you. <laughs> um, very sorry. <laughs> I have a silver canoe you might want, quicksand from my dream last night, two tickets to Sydney and a river a mile wide, the bounty that knows my crimes and hunts me like a dog. I have a papier-mâché woman that says, tell you your fortune, and offers the two of swords every time. I have the last 15 minutes of my sleep, a highway in my mind's eye, and a hitchhiker thumbing the air. I have surgeries and doctors and 300 vials of fool's gold, and I can go no farther south. Watch me collide with the 1970s again and bad B movies interrogating a jello substance bubbling out of the sink drain. I have exiled photos of bruised children and a predisposition for praise. 
I have picked you a gallon of cranberries. When the past slips over the field like a red dress, I lie down in the tundra on this mountain pass and belong to the sky again. You can wait if you want. So um, I think that uh, I always have to say this at every reading because I had so much fun writing this poem and just laughed, I think, all by myself. I find myself laughing sometimes, and maybe that's a form of crazy, probably is. Um, When I finally looked at my birth certificate about five years ago very closely and realized that I would always just look at my name, look at the birth time, birth weight, that kind of thing, location, but I, I finally looked at it and really sort of looked at everything, and I saw that under profession, my father had put magician. And <laughs> and he wasn't a magician in the traditional sense, but he considered himself a wizard, just as my mother considered herself a witch. And this was in the 60s and the early 70s and the hate in San Francisco when... Um, you know, they were doing a lot of drugs and it was okay to change your name and change your, and be whatever you wanted to be. So, and I'm sure that some poor nurse said, wizard, wizard. (laughs) So probably changed it to magician because I don't think my father ever referred to himself as magician, just wizard. He still refers to himself as a wizard. Anyway, this is magician. (laughs) To the conjurer of rabbits out of black hats, the escapist down to his final act of vanishing beneath 50 pounds of chains, you are born to his legacy of tricks and Houdini-style metamorphosis just waiting to spin out into the San Francisco morning where delivery trucks back up to doors, caution lights sending yellow like a heartbeat against the night. He puts his hand over your mouth. Are you the fire eater? You come direct from the illusionist to catapult from the black raft of his blessing. The infant devotion, eyes newly open, believe the world murky against the white wall's ambient motions. You'll play a charmed rodent and disappear beneath his black cape. Another feat of possession, another vat of bottled smoke. He loosens the knots, saws the box open, rips a red scarf from his sleeve. The silk becomes a dove, becomes a rabbit, and the cages hide in the floor. So Alaska's kind of all over this book because I was working on these poems while I was living in Alaska. And this poem pretends to be about a black dog, but it's really about a relationship with someone who's no longer my friend, unfortunately. But it's kind of why it is what it is. Black dog. Loan me your best shovel. I will dig the hole. This earth is soft. I kick it with my boot and it chips up. See, the hole is already started. The dog wants to go in the ground. He dug that hole in his yard until his chain would let him no deeper. I am good with death. Let me show you with this hole. I won't let it be too shallow. I will have him in the ground before dark. Make supper. Switch on the porch light for me. The other dogs will gladly eat his share. This is where he was going. This is what was down there. 
swarm. A honeybee queen lays the nettle in the weather in a black cloud that falls on two men lifting a rotten tree toward their truck on the fire road. It's just luck come up from hiding, a nether world she sends into the August groan. The men hack and flail pale limber arms at the air, their clothing and their ears. They jig around the truck in this unexpected season. I stand alone across the gully and kill the helpful girl trying to rise up in me. If they had found me alone on my afternoon walk in the forest, their baseball caps shucked, the red rising on their arms and faces, the bees go up and come down, a dizzy swarm, the men throw themselves into the cab of the truck, the haze the, the haze ascending on their dust until nothing they could have done was done to me. Two more from this book, and then I'll move on to some newer works. So um, I also um, I experienced a lot of loss where children were concerned when I was um, working on these poems, the first book in this this book and it all came to sort of a head in the poems in this book and this is sort of where I was in the middle of it and this is um, Then You Fled the Room Take down the circus mobile hanging above the crib Pull the pink streamers from the ceiling beams You are no one's lullaby Hours zip up in the tap of the morphine switch where they cut you out the numb, stapled crown, gauze taped closed across my belly. White walls pull me into space. The airy yellow flowers of the curtain drift in and out on hospital breath. The doctor flicks an index finger against my IV bag. Take down the circus mobile hanging above the crib. Pull the pink streamers from the ceiling beams. You are no one's lullaby. You were a religion of the nettle bed. I went to sleep. I woke up bearing you like a fluted narcissus, broken stem in my fist. I bump along the rifts, the rocks a spinster in the rift now. You've been counted out, my precious one, in the hospital crematorium. Take down the circus mobile hanging above the crib. Pull the pink streamers from the ceiling beams. You are no one's lullaby. And I never read this one, but this is, um, I don't know who this is for, but this is regarding mercy. You will work for the zero of the throat. You will not get away with a better ending. You will be cremated with saying, I your children will become third world countries. Your fury will be a white canoe in green water. You will weather a lone cloud in the Sierras. Your beliefs will seep from a cracked bowl. Your portrait will shut away the confession. You will worship the rubble, the ransack. You will fish for the split, you will fish for the split tongue stamen. You will practice a lion's sleep. You will not be safe. So um, this, um, so I'll just I'll, I'll read just a few from um, this new manuscript and that's in progress that I won't really have finished until 
you know, I have a little bit more time, which I hope to have over the, um, the break here between semesters. And um, this first poem is Passing. Um, and I came, I came to the title from reading a lot of literature from the Harlem Renaissance, but I was mostly thinking of Nella Larson's um, short story, Passing, where she's, um, you know, she passes for white. And when I was very young, I was very fair. And there was a point where um, I was you know, in kindergarten, and I, the kids didn't, and, you know, I was experiencing the first time ever hearing the horrible things that kids could say about, um, about black people, and I was terrified about them finding out that my father was black, and, um, so I remember very clearly asking my mother to just try to keep my secret, and so this is about that. Passing. I am told I asked my father to stay home, him being certainly black. My prayers ate a complicated trail into whitest bargains. Assassinations begin at home, even Peter Rabbit undressed for the farmer's cash. Ashes to ashes, my mother said. Blackness rushed after me like a heavy cloud. He read me passages from the I Ching, the mountain peak tables off in the storm. Attempted rescue with colored, pushing a cannon across the lake when I tired of swimming. An atrophy of fear is good. The inexact home I exploited in my early chapters only to be pleased with the storm. He stood in the classroom doorway and said my name three times before I let myself see his brown face. I let blackness ripple and then I went to him Guns through the rows of desks by spitting bees. Eyes in operatic horror dashed me to the rocks, but I went to him. Okay, so I, I have a thing about dead animals, and I think I've held that back a little bit tonight, but, but there's going to be a few dead animals coming up. So this is the moon that night. The moon that night. Having eaten your head clean off, my cat drops your plump carcass on the doormat. Between blood and purple clots, a bit of neck bone insists on the air. I lean toward this sharpness, get right up to the vacant white nipple like milk that has contested its cream and been deemed fat-free. Transparent like a baby's fingernail, the broken columns protects dead nerves. My cat licks her paw and smack. Your pudgy mass jumps, blood escaping into jute threads. White like the full moon that night, I was 12 and we snuck up the road. He opened his blue jeans and thrust his blunt eye at me. It was this or nothing, he said. I wished I'd chosen nothing. Later the moon split the road with redwood trees and I relented to my home. Exhausted, I didn't even swing my arms at the bats stilling moths above my head. I didn't wake until you, little mouse, resting in the middle of welcome. Until my cat, in whose wide green eyes I see myself leaning from the doorway, and I remember. This is very new Lake Champagne. Plain, I think it's Champlain, up in um, border of Canada, New York. It was just up there. 
and had a debate about a title of one of my poems, which I didn't read tonight, but um, this is the result of that debate. October, winter already, the snow geese buffer offshore, a restless ice edge. We cross the beach and they shatter the gray sky with white, black underwing, the shrill alarm that floods our eardrums and roots us. By thousands, their edge moves deeper on the lake. We are not harmless after all. You're giving me a grammar lesson. If you drown, you cannot rise. As in, look at that drowned man there in the sand. We walk the beach with our backs to bitter afternoon light. You teach me his past. He tried to drown himself. He fell in the lake and drowned. She held him underwater until death occurred. I press my boot on a feather beneath the glassy eye of a puddle, other white feathers turning as I grab them up like souvenirs. The beach becomes rock, slate shelves cut to from the waters changing. The beach ends where the woods come to shore and we turn back. The drowned man is impossible to know, a future further dismissed as, we, as our words blow behind us. One of my father's favorite poets was Robert Service, his Sam McGee who woke in the fire of his cremation. He burned and rose again. Does the drowned man rise and drink from his existence under our feet? A skin all tight with packed sand and lake water. Can I help him rise again? Um, just a few more. This is, um, they're shorter. <laughs> this is Pollen, and this is after D.H. Lawrence's poem, Song for a Man Who Has Come Through, um, which kind of, which not kind of, but which asks the reader or it asks the artist to consider not to consider self, but to consider nature and to consider that influence and um, above all. And that's one way to look at it. There's more to it than that. But um, So this is kind of my response to the poem as I was trying to connect to it. So pollen. As a person comes through, I say I. In a halo of sun-stung colonizers, minions with this one chance to claim a forest, I lift my hand. Among soldiers, my sweater is static and my upturned palm a worship. Is this the door and the knocking I must yield myself to? Rain puddles collect a glassy sage soup. I sneeze and sneeze, but inside I know the valid is offer. The neighbors call, Friday here, boy, Friday come. The cheer of dog tags ignites from the bushes. I need a great story today. Tell me, do you still want ten children in a musical number that will sell out the house? I've scattered in every direction so you cannot breathe me in. I will not be breathed in by you. So I'm going to read just, just three more, um, and I'm, I'm pushing three because one of them I just need to read because that's a revision, and I just want to hear it out. I'm so, sorry. I'm being selfish. How are we doing on time? We're okay? Okay. The kite. Force in the wings. 
tethered to a charity rushing up and swallowing a wind gust in a leafy yellow tail. The red tongue seizes and flaps. The dragon spins toward the black cliffs. Only the child's arms and hands visible in the field tightening string in time to send the dragon staling toward clouds. It tames the torrent with its mouth open so air can tear through the torso. A lot of talk with this string, joy, unhindered by belief, roars in the suker of nylon for however long the child manages the mouth and the wind. Who will the child be when the dragon goes into the sea, arms threaded over by snapped string, the bragging runnel of a beast who must always answer to pleasure, deflated, nose cracked, and wings crisscrossed against the churning shore? Okay, Rose. Comb high on her head, I work her hair for the third time, turning brown tresses under, smoothing out braids. Dutch, thick brown rose. She thumbs a magazine, and I see blackbirds beyond the barn thieving the bean trees. Fence to fence line to row, more blackbirds. A silky lock springs from behind her ear and rests on her shoulder. It is like her to make me wrong all the time. I push the lock inside a knot, and it loosens again. Blackbirds in the bean trees, I say, and have this one astonishment to share. Beans her mother will spend days canning in the muggy kitchen dawn. I twist a rubber band around the thick end of her braid and leave the uncaptured lock brushing her neck. She reaches up to touch my work, and in her brow, disappointment. From row to row, the thieving birds maneuver triumphant morsels away. A scarecrow slumps on his pole, straw-laden arms pointing out assassinations. And I, I think this, this last poem features my dog, and, you know, I, I adore her, so I just have to finish on a, what I hope is a ha- upbeat note. And this is kind of in conversation with uh, Elizabeth Bishop's poem, Sandpiper. This is Atlantic. My dog chases a sandpiper toward the surf, chasing, chasing until the bird flies, both of them snagged by a wave's foamy edge. A crescent washes my boot, new moons everywhere I turn. Growling and purring, sand releases the wave, Tigers hiss and retreat in millions of grains. My dog looks at me, looks at where the sandpiper flew, brow furrowed and ears up. Is this joy? The next wave soaks her jowls. I see her kind of joy, and it is fast, startled, and smells seaworthy this morning. I cannot see my joy. My dog runs south along the waves, drawing with her that great leash until it is tearing, and I call her name. The game races back to me. She tumbles into my legs, catches me with cold, sandy kisses, bumbling my arms. I say, good girl, good girl. This measure is all in everything. Thank you.
Thank you, Amber. And thank you, Kai. We have time for some questions. Um, and I want to, uh, while you all get settled, sort of take the uh, prerogative of sort of asking the first one. Although I've got two in my head, so let me just start with one. Um, Amber, you mentioned a little bit about um, you know difficulty writing and you know rejection at the moment, only at the moment. I assure you. Um, and so I want to ask both of you: How do you? get time to write. I mean, both of you are dealing with students and um, administrative details and other things. And of course, Amber, you just still relatively recently moved. So how, how, how do you get work done? Or how difficult is it now? And is there any pressure from the fact that, okay, you've, I've already got a book and now two books and Kyle three and now another one's coming. How do you keep going? How do you, how do you get started writing? And then how do you keep going? Um, I keep going in poetry, um, and the only reason I keep doing it is, uh, finding new challenges to give myself. If it's just about, you know, writing poems, like, I don't wake up in the morning, I'm not one of those people that have to write a poem today. Mm -hmm. Um, or I know some people that, uh, seclude themselves away on Sunday for a certain amount of time and say, well, I'm, I'm not leaving this room until I've written a poem. Like, I don't, I don't have that desire. It's more so about, you know, what, what challenge can I give myself in terms of engaging with an idea and finding a creative way to communicate that into an audience? And, you know, can I solve that problem? I mean, that's what it's, it's all about. I mean, like with the Logaria dementia, as I was saying, like that idea that I got from David Brooks, I was wondering, like, well, what could I do with this? Mm -hmm. um, and that turned into a book. Um, and it's also like it's not. I don't want to say crazy because I mean, one, that's a, it's a problematic word, but I mean, just the poet's mind is a. It's free to be odd. Um, and say, for example, so I, like my my grand opus poem that I'll hopefully publish before I die. Um, when, I, when my second book came out, Bouquet of Hungers, I was doing a lot of touring in the Midwest and driving on these interstates. And when you're on these interstates, you see a lot of the um, uh, porn shacks, you know, like <laughs> Adult Emporium, XXX, whatever, right? And I saw that phrase enough times when I thought to myself, hmm, what would it actually be like if there was a store for adulthood, like an actual adult emporium? <laughs> like, what would be in that store? You know, Go what would buy, the, how, buy, buy being adult? Right? Yeah, right. And and so that's my thing. I'm I'm writing this, trying to write this poem called Adult Emporium, not about adult in the triple X sense, but like you know, what if you were to, if there was a store for adulthood, if there's a Walmart for adulthood, what would it, what would it look like? Um, and but and that's a challenge that I think on the uh, on the back end, if I engage that properly, it might make for an interesting poem. But you don't know; it's just a lot of trial and error um, and interesting things. Um, I guess in a perfect world, I'd be able to write every day. Um, but I'm a teacher, so on the days when I'm teaching and when I have meeting with students, and I've 
prep to do. Um, I sometimes I get really lucky and like all of a sudden in the middle of something, um, a line will come to me or an image. So I have my little journal and I jot down whatever that thought is. But really the only days I get to write are pr pretty much like um, Friday and Saturday because those are really the only days that I can um, take time away from all the other things that I have to do and not feel guilty because I sort of like allow that space. I'm just like I get up in the morning and all I think is I have time today or I have space today and I can make up that time another time. Like I can get up at five on Monday morning and do this, grade those papers or whatever. That never happens. But anyway, <laughs> especially this, this semester where I am working so much and, and on the job market and on, um, you know, uh, just dealing with so much at the university, it just feels like I have to steal time whenever I can for my writing. Um, and I really, I want it. I want the poems called to me. Um, I get really depressed and angry if I'm not able to write every week. Um, I, I just feel like my, I feel hopeless, you know, without it. Um, I don't know. Was that kind of, what, how do we, how do we yeah. do it? Like, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, su I'd like Sunday to be a day that I can just write, but pretty much it's usually the day where I'm catching up and, preparing for the week um mm -hmm. so usually friday and saturday are my big writing days yeah i, I remember once uh, actually it was at coffee con sonia sanchez was was talking about that and she was saying how well you know that's how i started writing haiku i would feed the baby with one hand and write a haiku with the yeah. other and i said oh my god you know but then she's sonia sanchez she can do whatever she wants yeah. um <laughs> Like no, this is not this is not possible for normal human beings. Um, are there any are there any questions uh, from the audience? Although I do have another one that I can throw out while while people are gathering themselves. Uh, can I add something to what? Sure. So sure, the, like sure. the whole like I'm not doing this and I feel depressed about that. Yeah. It's funny. I don't feel that way about writing, but I feel that way about basketball because like it, I, I, but no because if I don't go if I like if I go two or three weeks and I don't play in the back of my mind I'm thinking you know um my dexterity is going to be off my eye is going to be off mm -hmm. and the thing is that it doesn't happen for poetry is because even when I'm not like actively writing you're always writing in your head and so that's when you know when, when people ask me well when do you write I'm like I'm always writing it's just a matter of like what makes it to the paper yeah yeah, yeah. Like that's that. sort of that question. But jump shots are different because I yeah. just can't shoot jump shots all the time. So I need to actually go in the gym and do that. Yeah. Sort of like that question of practice, like when you, but with musicians, when do you practice? I guess when your writers are always practicing in your head. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. Then. What do you do then? You you you've got papers. Hi. Thank you, Judy. What what do you do then when you're disturbed or distracted and you can't? Right. I mean, you say that it's always writing in your head. I just uh, am recovering now f uh, four weeks out of the hospital for major aneurysm uh, surgery, and in the six weeks that I found out and waited for that surgery, I, I, I lost it. I was on uh, different medication changes for the uh, pain, so a smorgasbord of narcotics, and believe me, they don't inspire you to write. Uh, so when you really can't write, what do you do besides the notebook? Uh, what What is the frustration like? How do you overcome it? Um, and I also think that uh, Aldous Huxley would help you write your adult emporium. 
It's it's um, it's like Kyle said. I'm I'm in my head with it. Um, but even when I was really sick and I was on lots of medications and I wasn't able to um, write, I still wrote. And I, I didn't understand what I wrote later, but at least I I would go to bed and I would just be like, okay, well I wrote something. It's there. <laughs> uh-huh. I may not understand what it is, but maybe some Morphine. there'll be something there. Yeah. Morphine. Yeah. Um, I I grow vegetables too. I used to be a landscaper. Um, so I, I, I garden, and one of the things that I understand from gardening is that every once in a while, you need to let the soil go fallow, right? So for me, if there's a time, like I have students, and they come to me like, oh, I have writer's block. And I say, well, maybe you just don't have anything to say right now, and that's okay. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's this constant, you know, pressure in our culture to produce and comment. And it's like, maybe every once in a while, you just shut up. You know, it actually might help, you know. So that's part of it. But um, for, for, so when, it, when I'm not writing, I just assume, like, it's a time when I'm not meant to be writing. And that's okay. Because eventually I'll get back to it. Um, but with pain, though, I mean, pain is different. Like, I, I, I've never been in a situation. Luckily, it's something I didn't write about in the introduction to the new book. But I've never broken a bone in my body or had to undergo any type of surgery or anything like that. So that intensity of like physical pain, I've never experienced. But certain types of emotional pain, um, not depression, but whenever I find myself when I'm in a romantic relationship that just isn't right, it's really hard for me to write then because I guess that rear space in my mind that I use to you know process poetry is just taken up with so much doubt about the relationship that there's no space for the poetry. So that's the only time when I really find it difficult to write any other time. Either I'm writing or I figure, you know, it's the off season and that's fine. I'll, I'll trade you the pain for the romance. Uh, I'll pass, <laughs> but I'm glad to see you doing better. Okay. Got another question here too. Yeah. Um, I enjoy both works. Um, this is a question to Amber. Uh, Amber, do you, I like the contrast of words you use in your poetry. So will you consider your work to be some aspects of literary surrealism? Yes. Yes, I really enjoy um, the surrealist poets, um, or I like magical realism. I mean, it just depends on where you're reading with, like, Lorca. Um, but I, I, Breton's one of my favorite poets, um, Andre Breton. And uh, so I'm, I'm very... I really like the surrealist poets, but I, I have a different kind of... Um, you know, I don't feel like it's, it's right for me just to be surrealist now because that movement happened and it's like everything I do is in conversation or in response to it and I want my work to do a little bit more I want it to, to go in a little bit of, a little a direction that's more um, conscious of structure not that the surrealists aren't because they're incredibly conscious of structure but I'm looking at it a little differently I guess because both my parents and mother's a uh, an abstract landscape painter and my father is an abstract sculptor then I'm a little little tired of the abstraction, so I'm trying to find ways to, you know, have the work be elevated to that level of experimental without um, nonsense kind of... Not that I'm accusing anyone of nonsense, because my parents' work, both their work is very interesting. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned um, in talking about you know, the difference between your first book and your second book that uh, that your publisher and other people wanted you to do something 
maybe less abstract, perhaps, or a little yeah. bit more concrete. And I was wondering, actually, for both of you, what pressures or what things that you felt as you went from book to book to book? Did you want to change, or did you want to do the same thing, or what? what is it like, okay, I already got one book, and now I want to do another? Is it just a continuation, or are you trying to go to different ways, or...? How, how do you how do you do that? I thought I was going different ways, but no. I'm sorry. There's going to still be a lot of dead animals in my poetry until I die. <laughs> well, I'm it's Alaska, always going to write about snakes and rabbits. And um, let's see, what else am I obsessed with? Um, I, my poems are starting to converse with each other, just as I'm conversing with the poetry that I read, um, the poets that I read. I just I, I want to move out of that, and I perhaps will, but it hasn't occur, It hasn't struck a chord with me yet. Um, so it, maybe it'll happen, but so far I'm I'm still working kind of in the same. They're all kind of they're they feel like they're progressive movements on the same sorts of explorations that they're just kind of like I get better or I look at it differently. Like one time I'm I'm focused primarily on imagery. That's the first book. A lot of imagery. This third book is a lot of structure, a lot more, a lot more awareness of the poem as like a breath, um, and a lot more awareness of how it, where it begins, where it ends. Um, so, so the overall structure. Um, up to this point, I had this, this concept I call bibliophile side, and it's basically with every with every new book I write, in some way I'm trying to um, destroy. The author I was in the last book, um, not not necessarily because I, I have any issue with that voice. I mean, that that was me at a point in time, but it's that you know, I guess the sort of phoenix process, like you burn to be reborn, right? So every book, um, I'm trying to do that, and it's it's interesting, you know, speaking about the Kabi Khanna Prize, which is a prize we both won as a first book prize. Um, now that I'm at like book four. It's like I look at the first book, and it's almost like that book is like, um, I guess, an overture for like, you know, the attack for like, there are themes. It's, there are themes in that book that get expounded upon in different ways in each book. Like, there might be a theme from the listening that takes on more space in Bouquet of Hungers or in uh, Laudere Dementia or in Honest Engine. Um, but they're all different, but it's like, you know, one of my. Uh, it's it's a Jay Z quote, but I find it very useful. Um, and he says it takes you your whole your whole life to write your first album, mm-hmm. right? Your your first album is the story of your life up to that point. Your first book is the story of your life up to that point. Um, and so it's it's interesting to see how that material comes back um, and grows with with each book. So it's not it's it's never it's never any pressure again for me it's all about just trying to be open and like listen like what is life telling me that i need to cue in on right now i don't like forcing books um i don't think books want to be forced and i don't think i want to read a book that was forced Mm -hmm. you know so i just try to have that conversation with what's going on around me you know i wanted to say one other thing which is that i've i'm more honest about my past now. I'm more willing. I'm like, I'm not as afraid of being honest about where I come from. And that's something that's just happened to me in the last few years where I just decided I didn't have any reason to be afraid to talk about um, anything in the past. And before I was really have thought, I've got to be this particular type of poet. You know, I've got to rise above 
all of the things that have happened in my life and make it sound literary. And, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and now I, I feel like uh, I'm finding my way into to more truth about my, you know, my experiences, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> okay. That's interesting that that pressure to sound literary or poetic. One of the things that, because so many of my students now, I, don't, I guess it's the way poetry is taught in high school. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of the students come to college hating uh, poetry. Yeah. And so one of the, the, the first things I do to break the ice is that I give them, um, I take the clearing passage from uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, and I break it into lines and give it to them. And we talk about, you know, how it's a poem. Uh, all the different elements, and then at the end, like, so, right, so we, we feel comfortable about how this works with the poem. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we get it. I'm saying, this isn't a poem. This is a passage from Beloved. But, you know, what I want you to see is that just in terms of language, it's not as though prose and poetry are worlds apart. Mm-hmm. You know, that Toni Morrison, a very lyrical writer, can write in a way um, that may even sound like a higher lyric than, you know, a lot of contemporary American poets. So, you know, I think we have to do a lot of work in terms of breaking down um, a lot of the misconceptions and animosity that, you know, modern contemporary readers have towards poetry because um, a lot of those ideas, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not true. Mm-hmm. I was telling my students, like, don't, don't try to sound like poetry. Just write. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah go ahead. I got a loud voice. Could you say more about that, just trying to write and not, I love trying to sound literary. I think people told me I sounded more like a poet before I started writing poetry. Yeah, I mean, poetry sounds like what it sounds like. It's sort of like the same thing, you know, with... Yeah, well, I, I, another like example yeah. I use like with race, right? Because I mean, again, like Cave Canem, but like there is a, there are a there's a plethora of voice in Cave Canem. So if you were to say that oh, Cave Canem poets, like what do they sound like? They sound black. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. If you mean they sound like what they sound like, and they're all black, then yeah, they sound black. But if you're trying to say they sound like one specific thing, that's not true because you know black doesn't sound like one specific thing. The same way that poetry doesn't sound like one specific thing. Like we may have ideas in your mind. I know for me, growing being a teenager in the '90s with the sort of development of the slam movement, I noticed how so many people started to sound like Saul Williams. Like yes. there were so many people who read performance poetry, and everybody sounded like Saul Williams. And people were saying, "Oh, that's what slam poetry sounds like." No, that's what Saul Williams sounds like and people who try to copy Saul Williams sound like. But you can write whatever you write and that's still poetry and that's still slam. Um, but we, you know, we, all, we all go through that int- uh, imitative phase and that's fine. But you know, the most important thing, the thing that I'm always trying to get my students to do is like embrace your own voice. Embrace your own voice. Like Everyone's going to write a poem about a tree. That's fine. You have to give me a reason to read your poem about a tree. Because if you don't give me a reason to read your poem about a tree, then... Why should I waste my time? I can go read somebody else's poem about a tree. But if you're going to be present in the poem via your voice, not trying to write or sound poetic, but to sound like yourself, then you're giving me something I can latch on to. But if you're trying to sound like poetry, a general idea, and it's just sort of spinning your wheels. So that's what I think, you know, I'm always trying to get people, just be comfortable being yourself on paper. And that takes time. I mean, you're talking about not running from your past. It, it takes time to get people to to... Be comfortable with the vulnerability that comes from being honest on paper. It took time for me as well, and I'm glad I'm, I'm in that space, but it, it takes different people different amounts of time to get there. But that's what I mean by being yourself as opposed to like writing the idea like of poetry. Mm. Like 
Yeah. What, what, what sort of things do you, since people might have this question, what, how do you teach a, a college student to write a poem? Or what, 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 what are you doing in the classroom there that sort of says, okay, kid, you just, you, you know, you, you came in for this poetry class, sit down and write. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm tough. I always, I make them, I, I say sit down and write, and they actually have to sit down and write in my class. I, that's the first thing I do is I, we get our introductions done. We, um, you know, I introduce myself, they introduce themselves. But their first questions are always, what is the poem? You know, what is this thing called poetry? Um, what do you think it is? Because they want to make sure that I'm not going to shut them down for what they think the poem is, mm-hmm. um, and they want to know that you know if if I, they're in the room with someone who's going to be judgmental about their the way they hear the poem or whatever. But I just I just get them writing, so that's the first thing I do to to sort of facilitate that process. And I don't, um, so I get them writing, and I have them write a lot in the first th- three weeks of of classes generally, and. How do I teach the poem? Oh, God. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't really think of myself as teaching how to write a poem except teaching the mechanics. You know, I teach all of the tools. I give them all of the tools. But all of it coming together into an actual poem takes their their dedication through the semester. So it's, I sort of see it as a, as a whole semester process. I mean, I'm only putting that amount of time on it because that's the amount of time we're given with them. And at the end of the semester, if they've had one breakthrough, just in one line, or I feel really, especially, you know, I'm thinking of my intro to creative writing, um, intro to poetry writing courses. I feel very, I feel very good about that. But I want them to write a lot because it's like I think it's that hungry writer in me that wants to give them what I'm not getting, which is. It's, it's powerful and wonderful to sit in the room with a bunch of young people who don't know how powerful it is to go into that space of poetry and then just say, here, you're going to spend the next 35 minutes writing on these subjects or in these areas or in this form. And so, so I don't know. I mean, that, that's kind of, that's a little bit about what I do. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to nail this quote down, but I'm pretty sure John Coltrane said this. He, he said you have, to be, you have to know the note before you can improvise around the note. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what I, when I think about when I'm, I'm teaching poetry. It's like I'm, I'm teaching you the note, but I'm also, more importantly, teaching you that you have to find your own way to improvise around the note. Like, that's what poetry is. Poetry isn't just the note. If, if all John Coltrane knew how to do was play notes, he wouldn't be John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. Right, he needed to know how to improvise, how to solo, and that's all like developing your own feel for the art form. Um, and that part of that comes with practice, um, and then I think part of it too, um, you know, one of the things I mean, nobody probably does enough anymore, but like reading, like you need to read, like you need to see and hear what else is around you, so you know what you do like, but also what you don't like, because a lot of what you know I wrote as a young person. That was me saying, well, I'm not really seeing any of this in what I'm reading. I'm not really seeing much of myself in what I'm reading. Like, and, and I would like to you know, populate my writing with what I don't see in what I read. Um, so you, know, you have to find that, that's that, to develop that desire. You can't teach that. I mean, that's one of the tough things about teaching in an MFA program is that I get lots of writers. I can teach you 
how to mark a sharp line break. I can do that. I can't teach you that desire to write the book that only you can write. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you it's important that you do that, and I can try to push you in that direction. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that I can do to make you do that. You have to want to do that on your own. Um, and that's the tough part, because sometimes you see some writers that are really talented, um, but they never find their way into that space that you know they're writing that fruit, that fruitive material that only they could write. Um, it's, it's tough. It's disappointing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Any more questions? One more question. Yes. Um, how did you guys know, you know, that you wanted to be, to be poets? Is it something that you kind of just leaned in towards or you always had a knack for or something that you just felt, you know, deep inside yourself that you just always wanted to do? Well, I, I couldn't succeed as a singer. <laughs> Seriously, I did, I did go into college thinking I was going to, you know, but I got to the advanced, the advanced, I guess I got to the beginning level voice classes, and my teachers told me you can't compete here, and so I knew that that wasn't going to be it. But there was something about that sort of vibration or something about the throat and the sound of language and sound of music all of all of that that sort of that vibration is the only way I can think of it for me that that was really important but I, my father was a street poet um, uh, sorry I was going to make a joke about you may have heard of him the arch wizard <laughs> but anyway um, he was a street poet and uh, when I was 12 years old he uh, he designed and published these beautiful little chat books um, and he was so proud. And they were just stapled spine, really nice paper. He, done, he did the design for the cover, just, you know, basically copied at a copy shop. But they were amazing, and he was so proud. He would hold it, and he would sell them, and he would go out and read his poetry. And I just, I wanted that. It was just something about that just made me, you know, want to, to be a poet. So I think that was the kind of, that was... that was a way in and I I was writing at that point and I continued writing all through my life from from then on Um, I guess my my field path was a material science engineer Um, I'm really good with ideas that's what I realized my dream job my dream job was just to be to sit in a room and have people come to me and say hey give me an idea I would do that all day I I would give away all my good ideas if I could just get a steady paycheck doing it um, but you know, eventually I ran into calculus, and what I learned is that while I'm great with generating ideas and thinking conceptually, I'm really not good at detail. And calculus is all about detail, um, you know. You and I, I blame America partially for this because I grew up in that partial credit generation. You know, <laughs> like there's no partial credit in engineering. Yeah, if you're wrong, no. like the the bridge falls down. Yes, like this. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I had that realization in college when I was like, oh, you know, there's no partial credit in college um, in, in calculus. So eventually I took, yeah, I took that, uh, I guess, that desire to deal with ideas over into poetry. And um, that worked out much better for me. I can still use that part of my brain and not need to be the sharpest person in the world when it comes to derivatives. 
Um, now, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with, you know, meter and scanning a poem. I can do that because that sort of, I guess, comes naturally to me. So, you know, it's just a matter of, of I'm, I'm still more or less the same person, but I think I lucked up in terms of like finding my creative avenue for it. But I don't think of myself as a, like, a poet. I'm a person that, you know, writes poems. When I, when I was in China, the, the, the symbols, the, the kanji for um, poet in, in Chinese is um, poem human, poem human. Um, and like, that's the way I think about it. I'm just a human being that you know, deals in poems, like the idea of the poet. That's not that important to me. It's more about the relationship between humanity and the poems, and that's why I do it. Um, do either of you write fiction or nonfiction? I do. I write some nonfiction, um, and I will probably do more and more of it. It's just sort of something I've um, started to develop, and you know, just with interviews and um, you know, in terms of publishing, I've published very little, but um, in the next couple years, I hope to do more. And I, I just I find it an incredibly wonderful space. Not not like poetry. Poetry is just very natural for me to, to, to sort of spend time in that. It's harder for me to write um, nonfiction at this point because I'm um, just just beginning in it, but it's uh, it's um, it's just a relief somehow not to, to be have to watch every single word and you not have to worry about line breaks. Um, it's just a different it's a completely different experience. so it's kind of like a it's like a bigger breath and it just there's more room to move and there's more more possibility in a um, different way in a more narrative way I guess so, yeah. Um, yeah I'm, I'm working on a novel but um, you know first rule of Fight Club she don't talk about Fight Club <laughs> so yes. I'll, uh, when it's done it's done that's all I can say yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, and, and on that note, uh, I want to thank Kyle Dargan and Amber Flora Thomas uh, for being here. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Pratt Library. Uh, we have books for sale here in the back. Uh, books make wonderful holiday gifts, um, and the poets will be happy to sign them and talk to you. Thank you all very much for coming.